I use the metaphor, if you've ever seen a space movie, there's always a gravity assist launch out into the far reaches. It's in every space movie. Oh, we don't have enough fuel to get to Mars, so we better do a slingshot around the Earth. And then I say to the managers, that's your job here. You only have this human being for a very short period of time over the full span of their career. Your job, in addition to everything else, is to help make sure you're that gravity assist slingshot that launches them out into the far reaches of their career. Welcome to In-Depth, a new show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, their companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. Through over 400 interviews on The Review, we've shared standout company building advice, the kind that comes from those willing to skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. With our new podcast, In-Depth, you can listen in to these deeper conversations every single week. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode, I am really excited to be joined by Russ Laraway. Russ has an incredibly interesting career. His journey started in the Marine Corps, where he was a company commander overseeing 175 Marines. That means he's been managing people from day one of his career. After leaving the military, Russ started a supply chain consulting company before heading off to Wharton. He landed at Google in 2005, where he spent seven years leading sales, partnerships, and enterprise services teams, and was recognized as one of the company's best managers. Russ then went to Twitter, where he founded and ran the SMB advertising business, growing it from zero in revenue to hundreds of millions. After leaving Twitter, Russ teamed up with Kim Scott to co-found Candor Inc. to help people implement the concepts from Radical Candor and ultimately have better relationships at work. Through this work, they consulted with over a thousand companies, big and small. And in 2018, he joined Qualtrics as the chief people officer when they were preparing to go public, a position he stepped away from this past January to focus on helping the company's customers think differently about employee experience. Russ also has a book on this topic coming out soon, and we can't wait to read it. In today's episode, Russ and I dig into how startups can drive employee engagement and develop high-quality managers. He shares several incredibly helpful frameworks and strategies with us, including his direction coaching career framework for managers that's backed by research and designed to really boost employee engagement. For Russ, there's two key parts to a manager's job description, delivering an aligned result and enabling the success of the people on your team. We spend time unpacking each of those. From where companies go wrong on OKRs and the debate around stretch goals, to his tried and tested framework and coaching methods. He gets really tactical as well, sharing the typical phrases he relies on when delivering feedback, his go-to questions for soliciting what folks really think on his team, and underrated questions to include in your own employee engagement surveys. And at the very end, Russ gives us 13 recommendations for leadership reads every manager should add to their bookshelves. From what he picked up coaching Little League, 
to the leadership lessons he still leans on from the Marines, to what he's learned obsessing over employee engagement surveys at Qualtrics. Russ reaches across his career to serve up some incredible wisdom for founders and managers, whether you're a first-timer or a seasoned pro. I really hope you enjoy the episode and now my conversation with Russ. Well, Russ, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for thinking of me and for having me on the podcast. So I thought it might be interesting to start talking about what are the areas in and around people, people management, org design, employee experience, a lot of the stuff you spent at least the last number of years obsessed with. What do you think are the areas that are under discussed or explored? What are the things that you're surprised people don't spend more time thinking about, learning about, or discussing in this domain? That's a really good question. I've got, I think, a very clear answer to that. Take this idea of employee experience. The primary measurement of that, there's lots of ways to think about employee experience, of course, but the primary measurement of that is employee engagement. And the first thing just to mention about that is I'm actually surprised how few people know what engagement even is. It tends to be a pretty standard looking five to eight question composite scale. You can actually measure engagement. I say that because a lot of people think it's like, what does engagement mean to me? And that can get pretty arbitrary pretty fast. Anyway, the reason it matters to get clear on what engagement is, is because what lots of companies, research companies and things have discovered is that engaged employees drive better results. And that sounds very intuitive, but it's the only major measurement I think that we've been able to look at over a long period of time that seems to have a very strong relationship to real results. Like I'm not talking about attrition, which matters. I'm talking about earnings per share, revenue, or margin. And so, for example, in Gallup's 2017 global engagement study, they found that companies in the top quartile, top 25% employee engagement, had 17% more productivity and were 21% more profitable. I say that because I do hear a lot that people think engagement is a soft measure, and I just think that's bunk. It leads to better results. And there's a lot of intuition we could explore that starts to make that much clearer. The second thing that people are not focusing on enough, and it's downright surprising to me, is what we also have learned over many years, decades even, of IO psychology and studying engagement is that the manager more than any other factor by a long shot is most likely to explain whether engagement is good or bad. And so again, just using Gallup for consistency, they found, this is going back a few years, that the manager explains 70% of engagement. And and I don't care if you're like, that's nonsense. And you want to arbitrarily drop it down to 50%, go ahead. The manager is still half. But if we just say 70%, that means that the manager is at least twice as powerful in explaining engagement than any other factor. And by the way, what explain means in this case is in large data sets, when you observe a positive variance in employee engagement, 70% of that variance is explained by commensurate variance in manager quality, both up and down. And so the manager is holding the keys and I'm surprised at how not seriously we tend to take that. What's even more nuts to me is most people are pretty familiar with that. We'll probably get to this, but I wrote a book. And the core model that I developed is just very simple, leadership engagement results. And I'm really surprised in the end how many people are familiar with that research that I just cited. They know it, but they don't operationalize it at all. 
everything else you're doing around the employee experience has to come second. And I'm not talking about close second. I'm talking about distant second to making sure your managers are great. Making sure your managers are leading with leadership behaviors that measurably, predictably, and reliably produce better engagement, which we already know tends to lead to better results. There's so many directions to go from here, so I'm pretty excited. So let's pick up the last thread first. A founder reaches out to you and says, hey, Russ, we're 75 people. We haven't really thought that much about management, what makes a great manager, manager training, et cetera, et cetera. What should we be doing? What are the highest leverage things to increase the quality of our managers, the blocking and tackling the work to be done in that area? A little bit of context here. When I was working with Kim, I got to talk to a thousand companies in one form or fashion. Uh, showed up and consulted with, I, th- I think, like 100, 150, something like that. And what's interesting is I would do lightweight discovery with these folks. They'd work their way into my inbox. I'd get on a, a call. And I, the very first question I asked was always, why do you think we can be helpful? For obvious reasons. I want to make sure we actually can be helpful. I want to make sure that this is going to be a good use of our time, et cetera. And a thousand companies, give or take, said the exact same thing. They used all different words, but they said large company, small company, tech, banking, US, Australia, UK, didn't matter. They said the same thing. We have an engagement problem related to low manager skill. Well, there's only one thing to say next, which is what's the nature of the skill gap? And so I asked a thousand companies and there were a lot of, a lot of things they said, but I, I sort of have this word cloud. And there were three words that were gigantic in the middle of the word cloud. And then everything else was significantly smaller. And those three words are direction, coaching, and career. Each of those is robust and complex and important. And if you think about this, so in writing my book, I, I really think the world has conspired to confuse the average manager. So all these big names that, that are driving really great research, actually, they're, they're just putting more out and more out and more out. None of it's a system. And the average manager doesn't know what the heck to do. They don't know which, should I pay attention to that research or that research or this research or that research? And so we're just confusing managers with actually great research. I think that's an interesting paradox. So part of what I felt like I had to do was to get to the essence of the job. What is the job of the manager in the simplest terms possible? And I came up with the following two-part job description. First job of any manager is to deliver an aligned result. The key word there is aligned, but deliver an aligned result. This is before you think about one other thing. You need to understand exactly what your part of the company's results, what part you own. Make sure what you're planning to deliver, what you want to deliver, the goals you've set align. And then you have to make sure each person on your team understands their portion of the aligned result. So that's number one, deliver an aligned result. And then number two is enable the success of the people on your team. And it just turns out that success has two distinct parts. One is short-term success, i.e. delivering the goals, the aligned result inside this organization this week, this quarter, this year. But there's also another version of success that comes up a bunch, which is long-term success, like thinking about my long-term career, which by the way, may not be at this company. And so if your managers don't have 
a clear framework, let's say, to set direction for their teams, it's less likely that they are going to be able to deliver an aligned result. If your managers cannot work up the gumption to deliver tough coaching so that people can improve, and also remember to give praise or positive coaching so that people know what to repeat, folks won't be getting course corrected along the way. They won't know what to invest more in or what to change. And then career, um, you know, I think a lot of people convince themselves that the person sitting across from them is an employee and our shared interest is about what we do here in this company today and tomorrow. And I think what I have learned is that the best managers say, no, 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 that person sitting across from me is a human being and I need to play a role in not only helping them achieve the success that they envision for themselves or the success as we define it within this company, but also whatever they envision for themselves over a much longer horizon in their career. I use the metaphor, if you've ever seen a space movie, there's always a gravity assist launch out into the far reaches. It's in every space movie. Oh, we don't have enough fuel to get to Mars, so we better do a slingshot around the earth. And then I say to the managers, that's your job here. You only have this human being for a very short period of time over the full span of their career. Your job, in addition to everything else, is to help make sure you're that gravity assist slingshot that launches them out into the far reaches of their career. Those are three big areas. That's, again, kind of the essence of the book, by the way, which is that listening to thousand companies, big and small, by the way, not just small ones, but big and small, and then sort of testing those quantitatively, those leadership behaviors quantitatively against employee engagement and against results, real results, revenue, margin, things like that. We discovered that those three areas are the most leveraged areas. In fact, I think it's all any manager ever needs, to be totally honest, to get happy results. People who are doing incredible things, achieving on behalf of your company or on behalf of your organization, and they're psyched while doing it. And I think that's the bar we need to hold ourselves to. So let's start with aligned results. What does that look like? Can you share a story or share an example when that's being done really well? And then maybe the opposite of that would be, what are the most common traps in this first big bucket? Yeah. I mean, the easiest example for aligned results is quota, sales quota. It's, it's a layup, but, but I think it's instructive. And if you think about how sales quotas are cascaded through an organization, the rest of the organization is as analogous. It's just a little harder to align things. It gets a little trickier, but conceptually, it's always the same. What is the CTO responsible for delivering? And each of the CTO's reports, what are they responsible for delivering? And making sure that the work down to the, every single person in the organization carefully aligns to what each of those people is trying to get done. Sort of obvious. Where I think companies go really wrong, so many companies are far more focused on activity than they are on outcomes. And so what that looks like is when you recognize someone for nights and weekends, you are inherently rewarding someone or recognizing someone for an input that is really not particularly relevant. Who cares if they work nights and weekends? It doesn't matter. Um, and so John Doerr wrote the book, Measure What Matters. A bunch of companies in the Valley use OKRs. OKRs are quarterly objectives and key results, quarterly or sometimes 
semi-annual, sometimes annual expressions of work. And really well-written OKRs are highly measurable. They're measurable or binary. There's no wiggle room for you to convince yourself at the end of a quarter that you did well when you really didn't. And so if you just adopt that simple rule, that if I were to drop the paper with my OKRs, if I had it in my back pocket and I was in some random building that's not mine and I dropped that on the floor and it gently fell like a feather and landed on the floor, and then some other random person comes up an hour later and reads it, that person with no context should be able to tell exactly how I'm determining success or failure, whether I will be successful or, or, or whether I will fail. Because the OKR is written so clearly, so accountably, so measurably that they can tell. And so I, I think the, that's the biggest trap is you start focusing on, well, what does it mean about my startup You know, if, if people aren't here for 18 hours a day? Well, I don't know. It might mean a lot of things, but for sure, I would put that question aside and say, what are the measurable objectives you're working toward? And then and focus much more on that. And then ultimately divvy up those measurable objectives so that every single person understands their part. Are OKRs the right goal-setting framework for all companies? Brett, I do not deal in right and wrong, true or false. I think pretty much everything in business is much more complicated than that. I think we can barely get to right and wrong in physics. We're not getting there in startups and business. But I think it's real good. Unless the founder of a company has some experience where they had a lot of success with something else, I would say don't reinvent the wheel. It works. You know, it works really well. And I think too many companies, I don't even know why, they convince themselves that they're too early for this kind of organization and this kind of structure. And I just, I think that's just wrong. So I'd say don't outsmart yourself. Don't reinvent the wheel. It's sitting right there. Just go get measure what matters. You know how to do it the next day and move on. Why do you think even a lot of companies that have studied OKRs, if you ask most executive teams in the Valley, are you happy with your goal setting process? I think most people say no. Maybe you disagree with that, but if you do, any theories as to why people are chronically unhappy with some variant of OKRs or whatever they're doing? So a couple things I'd say there. So by the way, OKRs, if not trained, people will systematically write poor OKRs. And that's probably a factor. So that's one factor. You have to show people what good and bad OKRs look like. Otherwise, they will write bad ones. They don't have experience or they'll tend toward less accountable, less measurable OKRs. On the executives, if you're unhappy with how your goal setting's going, then you need to ask yourself, what am I doing wrong as a leader that my people don't know how to set goals? And I'll offer you two things. And they both come from the Marines, by the way. First is never forget every manager at every level in, in the company, by the way, you are responsible for everything your organization does or fails to do. Everything. No wink, wink, no nudge, nudge. There's no pointing the finger at somebody else. If the goal setting in your company stinks, that's because of you. The second is the Marine Corps has what's called leadership steps, which, and of course, has an acronym. The acronym is BAMCIS, B-A-M-C-I-S. It starts with begin the planning, arrange for reconnaissance, make the reconnaissance, complete the plan, issue the order. None of those are that important, but the S stands for supervise. And there's a little cliche that we used all the time in the Marine Corps, which is supervision is the most important leadership step. So I'm in talking to my boss and the Marines. I'm like, man, I can't believe such and such did so-and-so. And my boss would just look at me and say, Captain Laraway, supervision is the most important leadership step. This idea, it's not what you expect, it's what you inspect. And so I'll give you a, a positive example right now. Our CEO at Qualtrics, Zig, Serafin, the first thing we do as a company is we set our company objectives. They are measurable, they are clear, they are focused. And that is something Zig personally saw to as the CEO of the company. 
And then Zig has absolutely supervised and insisted that every person in the company has their OKRs. And we happen to have a system where we can sort of evaluate whether that's happening. And this causes managers who go through, by the way, a training where they learn explicitly how to write good OKRs. Now they are better equipped to go look at what their teams are writing for their own goals and to adjust. I've joked over my career, the only time I'll ever get accused of being a micromanager is around goal setting time because I pay very close attention to this moment in time and to make sure my team understands their portion of the aligned result. And that permits me to grant them autonomy to go figure out the best way to achieve that goal and and really allows me to capture their creativity along the way. So if they're not happy with their goal setting, it's just they're not doing a good enough job making sure there's quality goal setting happening. End of story. What's an example of what a really good OKR looks like? and maybe what a bad one looks like, and maybe in an area that's a little bit trickier. To your point that there are things that lend themselves to being particularly quantitative and clear, and there are things that aren't, maybe it's in product or zero to one stuff or what have you. Are there any examples that come to mind or or good or bad ones, maybe in some of these more tricky areas? Yeah. So measurable for example, might be a relative usage improvement of some product. So that would be a good goal. Binary might be launch a product. And those would both be fine. It's very clear in both cases exactly what success or failure looks like. A bad OKR would be very input driven. So if an engineer said, write five lines of code a day, or there's a lot of things that people do, which where they'll say they need to coordinate with such and such a team. I know you need to go coordinate with such and such a team. That's not a goal. It's not measurable. There's no clear accountability. There's no binary, you know, you did it or you didn't. Like, who cares? It's just an input to achieve. Like, why do you need to go coordinate with that team? Not some big subscriber to the five whys, but it does help when you sort of write your goal, coordinate with the team. Why? Well, because I can't launch this thing without their help. Ah, Okay, now we're starting to get to what the real objective is here. And objectives, by the way, I I probably should have cleared this a little sooner. I don't need to rewrite John's book, but objectives are, can be not met. They can be unmeasured. They are sort of generally a natural language description of what you're trying to get done. The key results though need to be measurable or binary. And so you might have a goal as a company, you might have a market share goal, and that's totally fine. Just let's say what that is. Don't say increase market share. That's okay. Um, Don't tell me the activities they're not goals, the activities that are leading to increased market share. Tell me exactly what you want your market share to be. And it's less, look, you'll hit it, you'll miss it. That that stuff matters. But most important is when you have a clear sort of call your shot moment where you say what I want it to be. And then you have a clear accountability moment where let's say it wasn't, it didn't turn out like I wanted. The most important thing that happens next is not that heads roll, but that you can have an honest discussion about what's working and what's not working, getting toward our goals. So maybe you have one very successful product and you're launching a complementary product, an adoption goal around that complementary product that's measurable. You have X number of customers and you'd like to see 50% of your customers adopt the new product by mid-year. That'd be an outstanding goal. It's not that complicated. I just If people would just build a simple habit of avoiding input-oriented language, and go toward output-oriented language, their OKRs overnight will become much better written and much clearer, and they'll have a much better chance at shared success. What are your thoughts on the classic Google concept of OKRs is they should be 
effectively stretch goals that in, you know, 70 or 80% of the cases you don't hit it or hit it, I guess, depending on how you're thinking about it versus achievable goals. Yeah, I like it a lot. And by the way, with the stretch goals, sometimes they're achieved. You know, there's so many cliches around this we could use, you know, you shoot for the sun and hit the moon. That's better than shooting for the moon and crashing into the Atlantic Ocean. That's actually my version of that metaphor. And so I just like it conceptually. I think in sales, it's a little tougher. Stretch goals are a little tougher in sales. But everywhere else, my general experience is a very general comment has been that when we have pushed ourselves to orient toward a stretch goal, it really has changed how we fundamentally thought about the problem and put us on a path to achieve more. Sometimes the stretch goal, depending on the makeup of your team, does little more than inspire a little more hustle also. And I don't think that's really a bad thing. So I like it. I think there's a lot of art in there. Sometimes maybe we might decide not to set a stretch for any number of reasons. I'd say the biggest critique is that human beings like to sort of set a goal and hit it. And it feels like you're winning. And when you feel like you're winning, it tends to beget more winning. And so, you know, the classic, we're at the bottom of the mountain. Look at the top. This is why we got to get up there. Here's how we're going to get up there. And then when you get up there, man, that feels really good. And then you kind of start that over again. And when you orient around stretch, you maybe get some of the benefits of you think bigger, you think about the problem differently, et cetera. But you constantly feel like you're not hitting it, like you're getting three quarters of the way up the hill which can be demotivating. And that's what I've noticed as the biggest critique. Do you just find that that's not really the case or the benefits about way that or have other thoughts on that? Yeah, really, really good push. So I think that's a real risk. And adjacent or complementary to the idea of stretch goals is you need to know how to manage an organizational psyche in the case of great performance that misses the goal. I'll give you an example. We, for the first time back in 2019, I think, we set targets for representation at Qualtrics, diversity targets, not quotas, but just targets. And we set them stretch. And I'll never forget, I was in a working group with our CFO and he did some back of the envelope math. And he said, I don't think we have any chance of hitting those. (laughs) So we kind of knew from jump, it was massive stretch goal, but we stuck with the stretch anyway. And we, you know, we set like a three-tier goal, total representation, representation at the manager level, and then representation at the executive level. Fast forward to the end of that year and we missed our goals. And that's certainly one way to evaluate what happened. But another way to evaluate what happened is in that year, we six times our previous 10-year average for representation change at the company. Six times. So while we missed our goals, the fact that we set stretch targets, we sent a strong signal to the company, this matters to us, by the way, just by having them set as company goals. We were able to achieve six times what we'd done the previous 10 years in terms of representation change. So it's five times for total representation, six times at the manager level. Now you tell me, was that a success or a failure? And you tell me how easy or hard it is to communicate to the organization that was on point to drive that change. How easy or hard would it have been for me to help them feel excited and proud about what they've done? I don't know. What do you think? To your point, it's probably the way that you deliver it. Some of this stuff is hard to A-B test. I guess you could run it year two and try to see what the impact is and a feeling of if we won or lost or what have you. It's just generally tricky, I think. Yeah, I agree. There are no simple answers here. If you're asking me to evaluate a set of complicated trade-offs that ultimately require me to make a decision between using stretch targets or using actuals, generally speaking, I feel like 
those trade-offs when carefully evaluated lead me toward stretch targets. Before we move on, is there anything else that you've observed or learned about in this big bucket of alignment and goals? Something that should be very familiar to a lot of first round listeners is the idea of stand-up. And I love stand-ups. I sort of taken the ideas, I've stolen a little bit. So just below OKRs in the hierarchy of a direction framework is prioritization. And I think most people are really confused about prioritization. And it's this simple. Prioritization is an exercise in subtraction, not an exercise in addition. Prioritization means focus. It doesn't mean juggle a thousand balls. That's not prioritization. I always say three is greater than two. So if you have three priorities, that's more than two priorities. Three is greater than two is greater than four. Because if you have more than three priorities, you have none. So four is effectively equivalent to zero. Well, something we do at Qualtrics, but I've been doing for a lot of years, really important part of my routine and my team's routine is a daily prioritization exercise and a weekly prioritization exercise. So I do not start a week. In fact, this usually, I usually do this on Sunday night. And I will write down the three most important things I must get done that week. And by the way, they are a function of my OKRs always, or else why am I doing them? And if I'm doing things that aren't reflected in my OKRs, I need to go back and figure out why I wrote crappy OKRs. And then every morning, we've been doing this since COVID, we use the Slack bot to instigate a daily, here's what we're working on today. What I do is what are the three most important things I got to get done today and try to really focus on those and prior and do those things first. I feel like a lot of companies, because they tend to move toward activity-based, nights and weekends, 18-hour days, they can lose track of what actually will drive more success, which is a crystal clear focus on that most leveraged thing that I need to do today that will really move the needle for our goals. And move the needle isn't some arbitrary, I mean, move the needle vis-a-vis -vis our OKRs. Now, if you do OKRs and then you don't ask people to prioritize their work, which is an exercise in subtraction, not addition, you're running the risk of this problem that we all seem to understand and yet again, tend not to operationalize, which is people generally will be more successful if they do a few things well than they will be if they try to do lots of things and they'll usually do lots of things poorly. When you think about planning a week in the three big things that are most important and aligning around those, do you in your head have some percentage of your time that's just going to be the junk that comes up that just is like operating and being a a human being at a company just tends to pop up and you have to deal with it such that you end up saying, okay, I want X percent of my week aligned around the three big things. And then I'm fine with X percent being all the stuff that just happens in a given week. Or are you just incredibly focused on saying no to absolutely everything that's not in those three categories? Somewhere in the middle, I'm actually quite good at saying no. We need to teach people how to say no, how to say no politely, how to say no respectfully how to actually say it and not just ignore somebody. And so, yeah, I, I think I'm pretty good at saying no. But also you can't escape the stuff that comes up. The coping mechanism I have though is, and not everybody can do this. So if you could figure out something analogous for you, is I carve out seven to 9 a.m. every day. I get up pretty early, you know, I'm pretty old. So of course I get up early and I go to bed early too, by the way. It's a real sexy life I'm living out here in Utah. But from seven to nine, I block my calendar. And you may not touch that time. And I use those 10 hours every week to focus on my most important stuff. And then when I have breaks in my calendar that inevitably come, I'll get right back to those things. So I really go and tackle those things before 
the tempo of the company and the tempo of the day just sort of washes over me and I lose control of it. Are there other rituals or habits when you think about daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly that are a part of the way that you operate that you found have had outsized impact on you, teams, companies you've worked at? Well, yeah. So for sure, if you're setting OKRs, which are mostly quarterly, if you don't stop, measure, and communicate to the company how we did transparently, I think you're making a big mistake. How can you ever expect someone to take the goal setting seriously if you don't model that it's important? That's a ritual that I think is table stakes must occur. So if you're one of these executives that's complaining that their goal setting isn't going well, and then you're not communicating your progress toward your company's goals to the company, then again, why would you expect anything different than what you're getting? Along those lines, I think a generally bad practice is here we are, it's March 15th, let's see how we're doing. You're going to get surprised. Now you only have two weeks uh, to achieve your goals versus realizing there are 13 discrete units in a quarter, right? Weeks. And three other discrete units, months, where you can be measuring progress. If something's important enough, maybe it's worth having a dashboard that's updating regularly. A simple example of this is to our senior leadership, I report on our hiring every week. Our people are our best, most important asset, and, and we mean it, and we need them. And so we need the new ones. And so that's something that I pay attention to every single week, for example. And if we're off track, we'll either try to, okay, that makes sense why we're off track. Let's just keep rolling. Or we'll intervene and say, we got to get back on track right now. We're code red or whatever. So I think those are the kinds of things I'd expect. If you expect me to set goals, I expect you to be transparent about how we're doing. Leadership by example never goes out of style. Flipping over to the next category, which I think was around coaching, would be great to spend a little bit of time talking about that and what you've learned around what that actually looks like when it's done exceptionally well. There's really two kinds of coaching. There's improvement coaching and continue coaching. And that's it. And then there's a framework that I kind of stole from the Center for Creative Leadership. They have the SBI framework, which is a basically a way to have the conversation. SBI means situation, behavior, impact. The situation can be the problem or the context, like the team meeting. The behavior is the behavior you manifested and the impact is the impact of the behavior on whatever, your colleagues, the culture, the work. I realized though that SBI was insufficient because you also have to give people feedback on their work. So SWI is analogous. So, and that's it. That's what performance is in the end. Performance is behaviors and results. And so you should be coaching people along those lines. I was really lucky a number of years back, I coached Little League for a bunch of years, probably top five experiences of my life. I was impelled to go to a seminar from the Positive Coaching Alliance. And gosh, I'd recommend a seminar to just about anybody running a team or a company. And they talked a lot about praise. And it's tempting to think, oh, of course, the Positive Coaching Alliance talks about praise in the everyone gets a trophy era. But that's not how they talked about it. They offered the idea that you should be at a five to one praise to criticism ratio. And they were careful to say it is not five to zero, but five to one. And so I thought about this in the context of work. If you think about it, you're not running around firing everybody all the time, which means people are doing much more well than they're doing poorly. And yet we're really reluctant to call that out. Kim Scott, radical candor author, she says on the continue side or praise, she says it needs to be specific and sincere. 
It turns out that takes a little preparation and thought to be able to do that. But what I learned in Little League was nothing drove behavior better than praise. And so I did this thing where I would keep a book at every practice, like a lab notebook, and I would write down only things everyone did well. And so that started with showing up on time to practice. And then it went into counting loudly during stretching and also included doing the stretches correctly. You know, they're kids, so they're sort of looking at the geese flying overhead and pooping in the field. They think that's more interesting than stretching their hamstrings. You know, and on and on, down to moving your feet when you're fielding a ground ball, right? And about midway in practice, and then again at the end of practice, you know, the kids would start to request this after a while. Coach Russ, let's do some book. That's it. That's all they would say. That's all right. Come on, let's gather in. And I would read off who was on time. I didn't call out who wasn't, but I'd read off who was on time, read off who counted loudly during stretching. And this drove behavior better than any criticism I've ever seen. Now, we also had to correct the kids when they weren't getting their hips around, you know, before the bat on their swing. You know, you have to because they're not going to be successful unless you do that. But the kids did way more well than they did poorly. And again, it's Little League, so we care a little more about effort. We care about the inputs, right? We're trying not to overemphasize the outputs, though don't let anybody be fooled. Like, kids want to win. They're very aware of winning and losing. I had a guy I coached with a bunch, and we both were very into positive coaching. And our teams did incredibly well. And we didn't always have the best talent, but we coached our kids real hard. We're the team that the parents came up and said, that was a great experience for Anita. We took a lot of pride in that. And it's because our emphasis was much more on positive coaching. So I took that over to the workplace. It turns out, I don't know if you know this, but kids are just small people. Every one of us was a kid at one point, and we have an awful lot in common with our childhood selves. And it turns out this is pretty effective too in the workplace. And so I tend to be a lot more focused on recognizing those things that are advancing our goals, those things that are advancing our culture, those things that represent great collaboration. And I really, really emphasize those things. And Look, because I know my only goal is to help someone be more successful, I have kind of ways to get into that conversation and make sure that people are doing everything they need to do to be successful, including the things they should adjust. And sometimes those go all the way toward very hard conversations. But generally speaking, if I'm doing my job okay, you have a minimum amount of of those very, very hard ones. And one of the things I'm most proud of, and I don't get this right all the time, but this is a new bar I have for myself. About six months in at Qualtrics, I had a direct report. She's very familiar with my work with Kim and you know, I'm in the book. Uh, we had a podcast. She comes and she says, her name's Alexis, Alexis Lopez. She r- runs People Analytics. And she says, you talk about criticizing people's work and behaviors and you haven't, we're six months in and you haven't criticized me once. And she happens to love feedback. She's like, wait, something that's going to help me be better. Why wouldn't I want that? You know, she's got a really healthy attitude. And what's funny about that was I was scared to death that Alexis thought all I did was criticize her work because we'd spent six months evaluating some of the practices she had set up and whether we thought they needed to be adjusted, revised, or even some cases scrapped in order to scale and prepare for the company's future. And this was an amazing moment in time where I was worried I'd been being too critical because I, I believe it's you know five to one praise criticism. And she never even heard one ounce of criticism. And don't hear the wrong thing here. We were massively improving her work along the way. It was already good. We were making it way better. I think sometimes people get confused. And if your motivations are pure, I just care about you being more successful. Remember, the job of the manager is to, number one, deliver an aligned result. Number two, enable the success of the people on your team. The best tool, the most persistent tool, the most free tool you have 
to do that every single day at every single moment is coaching. Continue doing this and improve what you're doing here, both along behaviors and work. And yeah, I think that organizations that have this discipline are much, much better than the organizations that don't. When you think about coaching and or providing feedback on an ongoing basis, do you think a lot about the individual, the specific person and all of their uniqueness and complexities? Or do you think there's just a binary good or bad way to approach coaching and feedback? It's not either or for me. It's a little bit of both. At the risk of sounding like I'm not interested in people's humanity, I'd say I spend a lot of time knowing the individuals, the humans that I work with and understanding them a little bit in terms of what makes them tick and maybe even adjusting a way I might deliver some feedback or some coaching to them based on that understanding. I definitely think people get way too focused on that because in the end, if you go back to the objective of coaching, it's to help someone be more successful, period, by helping them continue the things they're doing well and to change the things they're doing poorly. The continue one tends to get easier with practice. People just don't realize they should do it. For a bunch of well-understood reasons, the improve part is difficult. First of all, every time someone gets improvement feedback or tough feedback, it immediately inspires a defensive reaction. I think a lot of us have been taught that a defensive reaction is means we have thin skin. What I've learned, especially using David Rock's work, your brain at work specifically, is that it's just a human response. Uh, you have human skin, not thin skin. And so that's normal. Now, you don't get to shout at people just because you're upset about the feedback, but you should always expect a defensive reaction or a threat response. It's just common 99 times out of 100. And that has to be managed. And that implies lots of things that if you were to study your brain at work, you'd understand how to deal with better. I find that people spend more time talking about their feedback. They spend more time trying to create the perfect circumstances in the conversation that'll make it land well. And it just really doesn't. It's just hard for people to hear tough feedback. A lot of variables underneath. If the person feels like they're in a threat state already, their job's insecure, they might lash out more. If the person feels really valued and and very safe, they might adopt the feedback easier. And so there's a lot of complicated variables there. But in any case, again, if I'm saying to myself, I have to help this person be successful, if I'm not just super clear on where I think they're going sideways and need to improve, then I'm just doing them a disservice. And so I'd rather deal with the aftermath with a very clear version of where I see what's going wrong than a sort of mealy mouth one. And all that to say, I never assert that I'm right. A typical phrase I might use is something like, I think I see something that might be getting in your way. Are you in a spot where you can hear that right now? And kind of let them opt in. And then it's a dialogue. It's not two overlapping monologues. It's not one monologue, mine. It's a true dialogue where we now start to exchange information about the gap, let's say, and then we start to elucidate or shine a light on real avenues we might pursue to help this person be more successful. And and that's irrespective of the personality. That's a little bit of the technique. I'll opt more toward, look, situation, behavior, impact. I got to help this person understand how they could be better. That's my first obligation. Even if it stings a little sometimes, I just deal with that. I take that on. I if I give tough feedback, I know I'm in for a couple weeks of emotional turmoil and friction in my relationship. I just plan for it. And I yet still decide to give the feedback because it's what's best for that employee in my view. Does that make sense? For sure. 
You talked about the phrase that you use when going into these conversations. Are there other phrases you find that you use all of the time? Or that if I were to talk to people around you that work closely, they could kind of give you the top five things that you say over and over again? And maybe what are those things and what are they grounded in or why do you say them? The one I use about 400 times a day is, you mind if I push you a bit on that? So someone's over there monologuing about their, their incredible idea or their, their big plan. And, and you're start, you, know, you have experience or you have an opinion and you're starting to spot a gap here, a gap there. You know, this happens all the time. First thing is never interrupt. That's a really, really bad habit that too many people have. So first, don't interrupt. Second, truly listen. So first, if you're interrupting, you can't be listening. And if you're thinking about and mounting your response, you're also not listening. But then a moment comes where you have a chance to offer some course correction, let's say. And I found that if I just ask this simple question, do you mind if I push you on that? Not only do, do I have about 100% hit, actually not about, exactly a 100% hit rate, I swear I see excitement in people's eyes. Now, it becomes really clear, like we're saying in some capacity, hey, your baby over there, your baby of an idea is not perfect. I'm always careful. My idea is not perfect either. I'm always super careful to make that clear. But together, we're going to get closer to perfect. And I've just found that people tend to be receptive. It feels like we're about to learn here. It feels like we're about to develop. It feels like we're about to engage and have a conversation. It feels like you're engaged in my work, boss. It's, there are no silver bullets in any of this feedback stuff, but this one might be about as close as I found. And it's in moment too, which is this dream we all have that don't save up feedback till the six month review, but give it in moment. And this is a way I found to be able to offer course corrections, improvement coaching. Also, by the way, continue coaching, praise. Right in the moment something is happening, so that we together help that person, that human being have the best shot at success. That's my go-to. I, I don't even know if I come up with another one. You're right. My team could, but that one, I get so much mileage out of that. It's incredible. I'll, I'll survey them and follow up with you. Good idea. When you think about this area that we're talking about, management, alignment, goal setting, are there things that you've changed your mind about in the last couple of years? It's obviously something all the way all the way back to the beginning of your career that you spent a lot of time thinking about, working on. And so more recently, are there ahas or things that you believed that you no longer believe in this category of stuff that we're talking about? What should be obvious to everybody but wasn't perfectly obvious to me is how important it is that the company sets and communicates its goals and transparently communicates the wins and losses. The CEO is responsible for everything the company does or fails to do. The CEO's most important constituents are not their investors, not their board, probably technically their customers, but the people who create value for the customers are the employees. And so, you know, I'm at a company now that very carefully sets its annual goals in deep collaboration with a broad set of leaders in the company, not just the head shed goes off site and creates them. But you know, we've done goal setting with uh, 100 people in the room, actually, for the company. Uh, that was really tough, but we pulled it off. And our CEO, Zig, is, he's a very focused guy. And he models that this is all we're doing. These goals, these company-level goals, this is what we're doing. I don't even want to hear about it if it's not something that drives one of these forward. 
And then we have a practice in the company where at the end of every quarter, we update, we talk to the company about how we're doing. And that includes an honest appraisal of where we're coming up short and what we're going to do about it. And so I was at companies that did this. Dick did it at Twitter. Eric slash Larry did it at Google. And we've done it at Qualtrics. I think what I've learned in the past couple of years is that that's got to be done. It's crucially important. It must be done. And if you're not doing that, you're missing a really big opportunity to reinforce what matters to the company and to demonstrate, but to stand up and say, we failed here. And here's what we're doing about it. You want a company full of people who can say, I failed here. And here's what I'm doing about it. And it's just so difficult for people to say that. So that's probably along these lines, the biggest aha. If the company's not modeling accountability, clear, measurable goal setting, then I don't know why you'd ever expect one person in your company to do that themselves. So I wanted to bounce around a little and ask a collection of different questions. And the first one is, as a senior leader in a company, I'm sure you spend a lot of time with all sorts of people across the company at varying levels. And that's an amazing place to figure out what's going well and what's not and how you can improve. When you catch up with somebody that's maybe not a direct report, just someone in the company, are there questions that you ask or a way that you approach the conversation that you find you get really useful stuff about what's going well, what's not, other than just asking? So the first thing is, I think you have to be a little careful about your expectations around what signal you would get from one of those conversations. One of the things I've noticed over the years is that every individual in a company is very willing to take their own experience and extrapolate that that must be the common experience across the company. And occasionally that's true, but far more than occasionally it's not. When I'm talking to people around the company, if I'm looking for signal, I've got a theory usually in my mind because we're doing listening at scale. I mean, this is what our company does. We have an employee experience listening product. And so what that helps me do is to understand that while this individual is having some challenge or some experience, and that's still important to help them with, by the way, don't misunderstand. Whether that is something that is broadly applicable across the company, I tend to be very familiar because I look at this stuff nearly obsessively with what are the major trends at the company. And again, most of these trends, trying to correlate them with engagement, by the way, because that's what drives results for the company. And so I tend to have a decent understanding of what the, the signal is, 27 offices, global company, multiple function, sales, service, engineering, product, right? So I might be inclined to inquire and ask questions and mostly just listen. I'll give you an example. During the pandemic, our engagement was increasing. And, you know, in the early days, a lot of people were just getting backhanded, right? We, we didn't have a big work from home disposition at our company, and it was really tough adjustment for a lot of folks. So this is well-trodden ground. But our engagement was increasing and our managers appeared to be improving measurably as well, both at scale and through the pandemic. And so I went and grabbed our three best managers. We recognized last year our top three managers in the company. I went and grabbed them and I said, hey, is this, when I tell you our engagement is higher than it's ever been, is that a surprise to you or does that resonate? Because I think a lot of people were just not sure how they were feeling. We were also challenged with all the different things we had to do with our kids and our failing internet and I don't have a desk and you know all these challenges people had, especially in the early days. And each of the three of them 
were resolute that this adds up. And they said, they each said something like this. First of all, our, our company's response to COVID was very strong. And so people generally felt like even though they had a bunch of challenges that maybe the company couldn't always address at scale, they felt cared for. We only had one goal in the beginning, which was the wellness of our employees, safety of our employees. And so that came through. That was good. But a little more leveraged was these managers said, look, I have been less distracted by not being in the office. And they said, what this means practically, and as I'm leading my team, is that I am able to spend more time on two major things. Thing number one is this idea of enabling their success. So more time coaching them around the things that matter toward achieving our objectives. And the other was, I've been able to lean in much harder on their personal well-being. And when you start to think about all the variables that affected people during the pandemic, they're actually, they're actually really, really rangy. And it makes one common solution at the company level very difficult. However, a manager can sort of customize the experience for an employee if they understand the decisions they can make for the employee and also understand the employee's unique challenges. And so each of these three, now these are our three best managers, so maybe some of this isn't exactly a surprise, but each of these three managers said these folks found they were able to be better leaders. And so if I heard that from them, just Vicky came and told me that. Vicky's one of our top three managers. Told me about that thing she found. I might not be as inclined to call that signal. I might just say, well, of course, Vicky's a great manager. But when we saw these two themes, managers improving and engagement improving over the course of the year, then I went out and I was able to get the story from our three best. And this held up for me, actually. I mean, it's, it's not a perfect answer. It doesn't explain everything happening. And by the way, there's still people with tons of challenges that weren't addressed at scale by the company. And then on the flip side, when someone comes and they have a challenge that sounds like it might be a little more their challenge. So this is a coaching opportunity. I'll generally make sure you want me to be confidential here. Do you not? I'll give them sort of the warning that if it's in certain areas, I can't offer you confidentiality, things like that. And then they can make a decision whether they want to unload. And, and generally with some pretty basic discovery questions can usually get to the root of what's going on. If I could offer one prescription for folks is be careful not to assume that everything you hear from an employee in the company is signal for the company. It's almost certainly signal for them, but it might not be signal for the company. And I think there are ways you can understand what is the signal for the company and you could drive a conversation to better understand or to put a little more meat on the bone you know, you take your data, take your open-ended comments, and maybe somebody will shine a little better light on some problem you're seeing at the company at scale. One of the things I was curious about is you mentioned that you sort of have these top three managers, or there's a top three manager award. Is there anything that you've learned from those folks or you've watched them do that you think contributes to their excellent management, maybe outside of the pillars that you already established or Maybe there's an example that reinforces that framework that you shared with us earlier. They're good people first. They each are really, really good human beings, and they show up like good human beings to their teams. We teach them what the right leadership behaviors are because we've measured them, and we know that if you manifest these leadership behaviors, the team's more likely to be engaged on average. There's not a lot I want them thinking about and focusing on outside of those things because, again, remember the beginning of this the world, in my opinion, is conspired to confuse the job of the manager and to confuse the average manager. And so I try to keep it simple and, and have them feel confident that if they exhibit these behaviors, that better engagement, better results will come. 
But there is one thing that they do that I think is really important, which is each of the three of them, and I bet this is true for a number of our best managers. This is not something we measure. They work very hard to extract the power differential that naturally exists between a manager and their employee out of the equation. And if you think about it, it's real hard as a leader to get out of your people what they really think. And, you know, I believe Steve Jobs said it. He said, we hire people to tell us what to do, not the other way around. And I think lots of people love that cliche. I think very few people actually mean it. I think people love to say it. I don't think they mean it. Well, I mean it. And I know that the only way I have, I know I have to create a culture. If I'm going to really learn what my employees really think, I have to create a culture where I actually dismantle as best I can the power differential that naturally exists between us. I control things. I control pay. I control promotion. It's always there. You just got to realize that that power differential, no matter how hard you try to dismantle it, is always there. And so there's no risk to going out and sort of farming for dissent and trying to get people to tell you what they think exactly the way they think it and creating a, a culture where that's rewarded and not penalized. And I think when I look at each of Vicky and Cody and Adam, what I see are three people who dispatch with hi their hierarchy. They're the boss and there's no getting around that. And they're responsible for everything the organization does or fails to do. And they sometimes have to make unpopular decisions. But when it comes down to it, they sit side by side with each of their people. And it's, here's what I think you should keep doing. Here's what I think could go better. I'm here to help. Here's the way I think I can help. How do you think I can help? Are you clear on where you need to go? What else do you need from me? And then they just go and they serve their teams. They serve their teams. They sit alongside them. They dismantle the power differential very naturally, actually. I'm not even sure if each of them would say it's conscious, but they do it. And their people feel really comfortable telling them, this is where I'm struggling. This is what's going wrong. There's this dumb dynamic on our team. That meeting was a disaster because why are we being spoken to by the next level leaders in such a way? And that puts them in a better position to kind of resolve their employees' concerns, the real ones. You know, I always say, I want the version that you go home and tell your spouse. So whatever you're telling me now, if you go home and tell a different version to your spouse, you're going to be out of integrity with me. I want the version you're going to tell your spouse. And it's real hard to get. And I think these three people do that really, really well. When you watch them, or if you were trying to coach a manager on how to best dismantle the power differential, what's sort of the how behind that? Well, the first is something we actually do measure and should measure is actually the frequency with which the manager solicits feedback from the team. First of all, I don't know why you'd ever expect anyone without a very specific personality type like mine that they're going to just kind of walk up and tell you, this is silly. And so you have to learn how to skillfully get people to tell you what they really think. And there's a way to do that. And it's not, can I have some feedback? That's about the worst possible question for everybody, by the way. Hey, can I get some feedback? Versus maybe testing a theory or maybe saying things like, for example, hey, is there anything different I could be doing that would help you be more successful? What would you like to see more of from me? What would you like to see less of from me? Hey, I didn't feel right in that team meeting. Something felt off. You have any insight for me on what could have gone better? There's just all these questions you could ask that are make sense in context that invite farm for dissent. And then, so you just 
think about these in-context questions. How can I be better? How can the team be better? To me, those are the same. I'm responsible for everything the team does or fails to do. So tell me how the team can be better. I'll just take that on board as something I need to be better at. There's a million questions, by the way. It just takes a little bit of curiosity, a little bit of context, and off you go. And then what happens next is really important. You need to listen and not become defensive. The bigger the unload toward you, the harder that is, but you got to do it. You cannot penalize the person for speaking up. If you penalize them, you end for a very long time their willingness to do this. And so in that moment, just listening, not responding, not interrupting, not becoming defensive, just listening is really important. And then ultimately, you have to have discretion whether to act on the input or not. I think that while you have no choice but to listen carefully, I think you need discretion on whether you're going to act on something. Going back to something we talked about earlier, not everything you hear is signal for the whole company or for the whole team, but many things are. And then just as important is the team needs to be able to observe a pattern over time that you ask for it, they give it, and then they are not only not fired for having done it, but they're not punished. They're rewarded instead. And then you start to create a cycle. These are pretty basic, obvious, I think, things to do. But it all starts with good questions. How you react to those questions, you have to fully sanitize your reaction. Engage, talk, discuss, ask more questions. Listen, don't interrupt. And then ultimately demonstrate a pattern where people are rewarded for having dissented, rewarded for having spoken up, and not in any way punished for having done it. And that is what creates a culture where people tell you what they really think. That loop that takes place over periods of weeks and months. On this theme of questions, something we actually haven't chatted about is the core engagement survey itself, which is obviously something you've obsessed about, particularly given the company you spent a number of years working at now. Are there specific questions that you have found are incredibly useful in an engagement survey? that maybe a lot of people don't think about or maybe don't have in their survey? Yes, is the short answer to that. The longer answer is a bit more complicated. So first of all, engagement tends to be a very predictable set of five questions. How proud are you to work here? Discretionary effort question, net promoter score, likely to recommend this company, employee satisfaction, how satisfied are you? Years and years and years of research have shown them to predict results. And but, but by the way, that's an important thing that I just said, which is I find that when a lot of people start talking about engagement, they are talking about what they think engagement is, not what is measurably shown through, some cases, 30 years of IO psychology to predictably deliver results. And the way a typical engagement survey is structured is you have the engagement questions, and then everything else is a driver question, and meaning you will use statistics underneath the surface to determine how much this question matters in explaining engagement or not. And so anyway, then that means that the most important questions, if the manager explains 70% of engagement, leadership engagement results model that I mentioned earlier, well, then the most important questions are the questions where your employee talks about whether the manager's just demonstrating these leadership behaviors. And if you put those questions in terms of behaviors, you avoid popularity contest issues you know, there's a lot of people think employees lie on engagement surveys, and they do, but they lie in both directions. I like my manager. I'll give them a little benefit of doubt. I can't stand my manager. I'm going to give them a little doubt of the benefit. If you sit there and you think people are only lying in a positive way, uh, that's just nonsense. So people, and lying's an aggressive word, but sort of exaggerating because they like their manager, exaggerating because they don't. Things like that happen, but it all comes out in the wash. So I think 
if I were starting any company out with an engagement survey, first is get the engagement questions right. First and foremost, always ask an intent to leave question. I'm seriously considering leaving X. One of the things we've learned is that there's not one single engagement or driver question that predicts attrition, except for the question where you ask somebody if they intend to leave. It has uh, unbelievable explanatory power in whether someone's going to leave. So you ask those questions and then you figure out your most important driver questions. And for us, we said, look, if the manager explains 70% of engagement, then we're going long on whether the managers are showing the leadership behaviors that drive engagement. And we're asking their employees, not their manager. Their manager gets plenty of evaluation on the manager. I want to know from the employee's perspective, if the manager's showing the leadership behaviors that matter. And the reason is, look, Qualtrics were pretty good, actually. Our managers are really, really strong. But global engagement is 15%. That's on a 100-point scale, by the way. It's percent. That's, that's, I don't even know how to evaluate that. It's disgusting. And if managers explain 70% of engagement, that means systematic global failure of managers. By the way, in the US, it's only 33%. That means in the United States, managers are systematically failing their teams. By the way, if engagement predicts results, think about all the lost opportunity. This, this is, I can't even believe venture funds aren't more focused on this, by the way. So at Series B is when I think there's no excuses anymore. Series A, seed, you could convince me, employee experience. No, let's just get the product built. Let's just get the product market fit. I'd actually push you a little bit there. But when engagement is poor, results will be poor. This is well understood. And by the way, the tech industry, our sort of favorite industry, tends to be more like in the 70 to 75% range. And so we maybe have a little bit better managers on average, this would imply. And we also tend to have companies with big missions and we're fast moving, we're growing. Those things tend to contribute as well. People are proud to work at their companies. Anyway, so you got to know what engagement is, not what you think it is. Oh, they don't seem engaged. What do you mean? What do you mean they don't seem? Go measure it and then be very thoughtful and careful about what you think drives engagement. And there's a universe of like 400 questions that are possible to ask. And my recommendation is your first priority is managers. Because they're going to, the managers are going to, you're going to find out what's really going on in your company by understanding if your managers are exhibiting the right leadership behaviors. On that note, what are your go-to questions that you've chosen to ask employees about their managers? Well, it probably won't come as a surprise. I think it's 13 questions we ask. I'm not going to give you each question, but they're around direction. They're around coaching and they're around career. And we've asked questions like simple question. Does your manager help you set your OKRs? Simple. The answer to that question should be yes. What are you doing, manager, if you're not doing that? A more interesting question is, does your manager give you a say in his or her OKRs? Meaning, do you have a say in what the team's goals are? We think that's important too, right? You're not just a recipient of direction. You're also a creator of it. Coaching. Does your manager give you tough feedback to improve? Does your manager regularly give you praise for job well done? On career, we have, I mean, you've seen my first round capital talk. So the career stuff's a little bit more oriented around that career conversations model that I've talked about. So questions like that, they're predictable. The framework is direction, coaching, career, because that's the framework that tends to lead to engagement. We developed questions around those ideas, and then we tested them on whether they quantitatively explain engagement or not. And most of them explain it very strongly, actually. I wanted to end by talking about some of the writing or books or courses that you've been to that you think have had an outsized impact on the way that you think about this work? The leadership engagement results model was not really born of anything other than I just kind of paid attention to a couple of thoughtful people, a couple of thoughtful companies. In terms of how to lead, 
I have a, I call it my 13 book definitive leadership library. I mean, again, I think there's a lot of interesting books out there, but I'm trying to simplify the world for managers. And top of the list, I actually am kind of excited about this part of the conversation because my hunch is I might say things that are not as common. I hope anyway. If I don't, then I feel like a fraud, but let's go. The first book, the only thing that gets close to a Bible for me in terms of like a business Bible, you know how people say that, is a book called Conscious Business by a guy named Fred Kaufman. It's so tempting to skip over things like understanding that my truth is not the truth, but still needing to fully own my truth. It's tempting to skip over the difference between a victim and a player and how to manifest more like a player at work. It's tempting to skip over what a actual commitment, the structure of a commitment, uh, a commitment maybe more than any other factor leads to operating excellence. It's tempting to skip over all that stuff, but you shouldn't because I sit there every day and I watch people play the victim and I watch people not make solid commitments. They haven't answered the three questions, who will do what by when. And so that one for me is sort of top of the list. And also this idea of being ontologically humble, meaning what I believe to be true is not true. It's a valid perspective, but it's my perspective. I think if I could change one thing in business, I could snap my finger and change one thing. It's that every single person would realize that their version of reality is not reality. It's just reality for them. And that we have to learn and understand each other's versions of reality in order to get somewhere close to the truth and therefore put us on a better path to success. I would go Your Brain at Work by David Rock. If you're out there trying to give coaching and you don't understand the basics of how the brain works and some of the common social threats that manifest in the workplace, I think you're abdicating your duty. It's everything, right? It's the hardest thing we do. And you don't even understand why people tend to be defensive and sad when you give them tough feedback. Like, what are you doing? I think Multipliers by Liz Wiseman. The idea of Multipliers is extraordinary, but she did something legitimately brilliant, which is she created nine accidental diminisher tendencies. So the diminisher is the opposite of a multiplier. Multipliers get two times the whatever out of their teams, diminishers get half. And you tend to think of diminishers as terrible people. The accidental diminishers are all wonderful people. The protector is actually diminishing people systematically just because of your instinct to protect your team from whatever. So that one's an incredible book. Of course, Radical Candor, that's so obvious. Maybe I didn't have to say it. I go grit. I love grit. And things like you've probably never heard of, A Message to Garcia, which is a simple book to describe uh, what it's like to show initiative. Measure What Matters, of course. The Servant as Leader by Robert Greenleaf. Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. The thing I'm perhaps most disappointed in among people I've seen at companies is they really don't take a long-term ownership disposition. Most people are taking a short-term disposition. A very practical decision they might make is, I'm not going to give a hard rating here and I'm not going to have a hard conversation because why would I ruin this relationship, risk ruining this relationship when I'm going to be out of here in a year and a half? You know, that's not long-term ownership. That's not good for the company. It's not good for you. It's not good for the person. And then Built to Last Tribe and, of course, Mindset by Carol Dweck. And that's it. I think that's 12. Oh, the leadership moment would be 13. That is a perfect place to end 13 books that people can dive into post this conversation. Thank you so much for spending all the time with us. This was so wonderful and excited for your book and to add that to make that the 14th. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate what you all are doing here. So thanks for having me. But more importantly, thanks for this work that you're doing. I do think that smaller companies miss a big opportunity to focus on professionalizing management at early moments. Because ultimately, people deserve to not only do great things, they deserve to be totally psyched while doing it. And the 
thing or entity or variable that is most likely to deliver those two things is a high quality manager. And I don't care what stage of company you're at. That's always going to be the case. So thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for saying that. We so appreciate it.